It's Thursday, June the 4th, and we are studying 2 Peter. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3. We've reached verse number 7. Take a look at the context here. You'll remember these are the scoffers, which I think are somewhat in contrast to the false teachers in chapter 2. They're not the subtle, secretly coming in. They are more of the obvious opposers to the truth, and they're mocking the coming of the Lord. Not that those don't sometimes overlap, but uh, nevertheless, I think in our experience, these are the kinds of responses we get from the world when we're trying to share the gospel, and they will say things like this in verse number four, where is Christ? Everything's the same. I don't know why you're believing in that. And we learned in verse number five that they deliberately overlook some things. They suppress the truth, as we saw there from Romans chapter one. And uh, they forget the fact that the earth was made, speaking of the formation of the earth, and that it was deluged or flooded. Now we reach verse number seven, which is what all this is ramping up to in terms of God's past track record. And that is that by the same word, the heavens and earth that exist now, that now exist, are stored up for fire and being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly which is what we've seen as a theme in chapter two. This is also a recurrence of that theme in light of the current folks that are looked at as a threat to the truth of the gospel, which are those who are mocking the truthfulness of the scripture. Now we'll look at some more as we get into verse number eight, but I wanna start right here by talking one more time about that same word. And we can see back in verse number five that the thing that they forget about creation was by the word of God. And we talked about that, how easy it is for God simply just to say something and have it happen. We looked at examples of that in Christ's ministry. And by means of these, and I talked about the fact that water here twice certainly can be in view. And I I don't know if I made that clear enough, but I think it also includes the word of God, but the idea of his word, that's one thing that um, uh, is the, means by which God had flooded the world, of course, by the word of God. We looked at that from Genesis chapter six and seven. And now he says by that same word, the fact that it's just easy for God to simply say it's over, he's going to send his son, dispatch his son, which it begins a sequence of events in the es- eschatological calendar of God, the end times calendar of God, and it will certainly culminate in the judgment of those who are lost. So this same word, I thought it would be interesting because the, the concept is throughout the scripture, but in uh, probably one of the earliest extra biblical writings, uh, the Didache would be in this category. Uh, first Clement, you probably heard of that, or maybe you haven't, I don't know. It's an early, late first century manuscript. It's actually written, they say, there's some debate about this, uh, from the pastor uh, of Rome to the Corinthians. Sometimes it's called the letter of the Corinthians, a letter from Rome. Um, but in this passage, I just think it's stated so well and so uh, succinctly, it's worth noting here, by his majestic or his powerful words, being of course of God, he established the universe, here's our parallel, and by a word, he can destroy it. And that's exactly what's being said here in Second Peter over a series of verses. Here it's in a very simple, compact passage in one verse. And then just to unpack the idea of the majestic, powerful word. Who will say to him, verse number five says, what have you done? Uh, Or who will resist the might of his strength? He will do all things when he wills and as he wills. And none of those things decreed by him will fail. And one of the things that we're looking at is the coming of Christ and the judgment of the ungodly. And the Bible is very clear that those are not 
those who are not protected in Christ are subject to this. I don't know, interesting quotation that says it all in a very succinct way. Obviously, this is not God-breathed scripture but has been a part of the early reading or the reading of the early church and uh, it's worth at least understanding and it's worth a quotation here. Uh, now, the heavens and the earth that now exist, and we've tried to make a distinction and perhaps too much, but the idea of the pre-Diluvian and post-Diluvian or the anti-Diluvian and post-Diluvian world being so different before and after the flood. But the contrast is made here nevertheless. The earth and the heavens, the heavens and the earth that now exist. And after the flood, of course, there was a world that was established. It was different than the world before in many ways, probably more than we can imagine. But in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 9, he says, I'll establish my covenant or my promise with you and your offspring. The you here is Noah. Uh, and every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, the every beast of the earth. What's the promise, right? As many as come out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Okay, verse 11. I will establish my covenant or my promise with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So there is a promise by God in this current world to not have it destroyed by the waters, which I think are massively depleted, whatever it was that existed above in the expanse above. Nevertheless, the point is there's going to be no flooding of the whole world to um, in this unrighteous world, which, by the way, is one of the reasons we can clearly argue biblically and textually for a universal flood. Those who want to say the flood was a regional flood, well, there have been plenty of regional floods since Genesis 9, but the promise was he wasn't going to flood the world and cut off all flesh, which happened in the early um, antediluvian world. So, Genesis chapter 9, just a highlight here, talking about the earth that now exists, and of course the earth that now exists is also characterized by the kinds of sin that is uh, increasing in this world. In the world here, not talking about the rocks or the trees or the you know, actual land and, and, and the makeup of the composite of this you know, geographical world, but the world and the things in the world, the system of the world, uh, it says we're not to love, we're not to be in love with this world, of course, because it's going to just can be stated here to be reserved and stored up for fire. If anyone loves the world, love the Father's not in for all that is in the world. And of course, we've looked at this throughout Second Peter a couple times we have. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. This is not from the Father, but it's from the world, this present world. This world is passing away, and it is going to pass away with a roar, we'll see in Second Peter, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever in this picture of a distinction between the old world and the new world is one thing that's being stated by this earth that now exists, but clearly everything we've seen in 2 Peter reminds us that the earth that now exists is filled with all kinds of things that God is going to bring to an end when he judges the world. It says here are being stored up. This word is used, even uh, translated in a positive sense uh, in various passages to talk about treasuring something. But two references I thought were worth calling your attention to of this same Greek word in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, verse 2. It speaks of judgment, saying, because of your hard and impenitent hearts, your unrepentant hearts, you are, same Greek word here, storing up wrath or God's anger for yourselves on the day of God's anger or wrath when God's righteous judgment is to be revealed. It's there, it's not happening yet, but it is reserved for it. It is being kept for it. It's going to be uh, on, uh, on hold until then. And so all this stuff is happening in this world, the love of the flesh, lust of the eyes, um, I'm sorry, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, the pride of life, all those things uh, producing all of the kinds of 
fodder, if you will, for the judgment of God. And that's what we as Christians are called to avoid and to fight even at a personal level in our own soul, our own spirit. James chapter 5, um, another reference, which look at all the words in English that translate this one Greek word here uh, down in verse number 3. But the context, he says, Come now, rich, uh, you rich, you weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Here are people that invested in nothing but trying to get ahead in this world. And they've done it uh, unscrupulously. Of course, in the passage, in the context, we know that. They've oppressed and, and they have not cared about what is true and what God has commanded them to do. And it says, Your riches... It says, have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Well, in fact, they had plenty of closets apparently full of stuff, but the anticipation of what's going to happen is as though it's already taken place. We talk about that prophetic perfect in uh, grammatical passages in Scripture about how certain this coming judgment is. We saw that in chapter 2. He says, of uh, Second Peter, your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. This again, this is going to happen and will eat your flesh like fire. We'll see that in a second. You have stored up treasure. Look at this, in the last days. There's a lot of overtones here in James of this picture that we see in 2 Peter chapter 3 of this world and all that's in it. And as we saw in 1 John just a second ago, all of that is going to perish. It's all going to be done away with. The world and its system and all the things that beckon us to leave the path of God and the truths of God and the values of God, all of those are soon to go away and they're being reserved as it says in Romans chapter 2 and unfortunately those who are, have hardened hearts and impenitent hearts are storing up for themselves uh, that judgment. So stored up and here's the theme that we see throughout the scripture that is often associated with God's judgment and that's fire and we saw that in chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 6, at least a uh, oblique reference to it in verse 6, if turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, of course the ashes come after the fire, and that was the result, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And so that was a theme unpacked. To get it in its original context, Genesis chapter 19, verse 24, we see that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur, and here's the theme, fire from the Lord out of heaven. So something comes down, it physically burns, that's the thing we know of uh, in in. in the physical reality of this life is fire. Well, you see in Scripture that that picture is one that's not only going to physically end a lot of life here on earth in the book of Revelation, but it's also going to be the depiction of the kind of judgment that's coming after. Take a look at this passage at the end of the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20, verses 9 and 10, and then we'll get into verse 14 as well. It says, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, and consumed them. Well, that's the end of physical life. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. There's the picture again of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they, are be, and they will be tormented there, unlike the physical body that is consumed. They'll be tormented there day and night forever and ever. And that's the picture of the ongoing judgment of God, which is also now symbolically depicted by fire and sulfur. Later in that very same passage, it talks about death and Hades, people that have died. They were thrown into the lake of fire. Again, there's our picture. This is the second death, the one that we're not going to be hurt by if we're trusting in Christ, the early part of the book of Revelation reminded us. The second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name who's not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So again, this picture here of fire 
is an analogy, an, a metaphorical analogy of the judgment of God that just like fire ended, that you glows red and you can see it with your eyes and feel the heat of it, that ended the life of people in Sodom and Gomorrah and will end the life of many people here at the end of the tribulational period, and in this case, the end of the millennial kingdom, right, is just a warm-up, pardon the pun, of the reality of judgment in the afterlife. And I say that because there's all kinds of images of the afterlife and judgment in the afterlife, like darkness. Well, you can't have fire lighting things up and darkness at the same time. These are pictures of what it will be like, an experience of being uh, rejected, of being excluded, of having the torment in the case of this the active judgment of God in the passage. And all of this, the Bible says, is the picture of the coming destruction of the world. Now, it will be physical fire at the end of the world, as we're, we're going to see later in 2 Peter 3, but it's also metaphorical of the judgment that's going to come as people store up for themselves judgment on the day of God's judgment. Jesus used this a lot. And we think of Jesus being so, you know, as, we, as I often say, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But in reality, there's so much here that he says that gives us this picture of the afterlife and God's judgment being equated to fire. He says this, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to, for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands than to be thrown into the, it's not temporary fire that goes out, right, and leaves ashes behind, but the eternal fire. Or Matthew 25, 41, this eschatological view of the end of time, and he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, you, you cursed, right, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which was initially, it says, prepared for the devil and his angels or his demons. So this picture of fire is one that Jesus uses of judgment. It's the theme here in our passage that the current world uh, and those that are in it, rejecting Christ and opposing Christ, are going to be reserved for God's judgment. And the world, though it continues on and everything seems fine, and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life seem to be the kinds of things that rule the day, all of it one day will, be, will perish. It will be done, and God will judge it. And that's the point here, judgment. And judgment is the evaluation of people and having to have God justly respond to that evaluation. The Old Testament picture, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the end of the matter, after everything was said about life under the sun, the vanity of life in this earth, if that's all there is, he says, when all's been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, do what God says, for this is the whole duty of man. Really, when it comes down to it, is looking upward and understanding our relationship with this God. For God, and we know one day there will be a judgment, will bring every deed into judgment. He'll evaluate it with every secret thing, whether good or evil, and the picture of God bringing judgment upon the world is such a fundamental picture of what the Bible presents us with that is the motivation for us to be pursuing and clinging to Jesus Christ. So this present world reserved by God's word, were he to remove that word and replace it with the word judgment, we would be in that day of judgment, but it hasn't happened yet. And as we'll see, that delay is not a delay. It's God's patient plan to bring more people to repentance. And uh, this is a sober installment of our study of Second Peter, but we'll be back tomorrow as we continue looking at this and seeing the hope of a world in which righteousness dwells. And we'll get to that later in Second Peter chapter 3. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll see you back tomorrow.